What makes a classic film? The plot's originality, the director's vision, the star's magnetism. Paradoxically, any and all, yet none of the above. No, just as only the public can turn a poor film into a hit, what makes a classic film is the audience. Good movies are rare, rarer still are masterpieces, and unfortunately when the latter does come along, all too often the very elements that make it a masterpiece also mark it out as too different. Like our eyes adjusting to the dark, it takes us a while to identify the qualities. And more often than not, those same qualities are first identified by filmmakers themselves, who use what the rest of us have not seen, as a roadmap for their own work. But a classic? That status is accorded by the audience, because the combined elements are best appreciated in a collective realm. Yes, the artists create the art. But 1980s audiences chose Huey Lewis in the News, Prince and Whitney Houston, over Mr. Mr., Eric Harmon and Debbie Gibson. The public always decides. New Coke, Classic Coke, Betamax, VHS, Above the Law, Die Hard. Die Hard is an extremely loose adaptation of Nothing Lasts Forever, Roderick Torp's delayed follow-up to his 1966 bestseller, The Detective. Adapted to the screen two years later, the film starred Frank Sinatra as tough but laconic New York cop Joe Leland, investigating a high society homicide. I think I'm going to be sick. No, you're not. You're going to tense your muscles and get out the notebook. Male Caucasian, lying nude on floor, penis cut off, lying on floor living room. Side of skull smashed in, cuts on face and chest, fingers shredded. Index and thumb of right hand missing. Deeply homophobic, the detective proved popular with audiences, and 20th Century Fox expressed an interest in a possible sequel. Accounts vary, but it is alleged that Thorpe was inspired by Richard Martin Stern's novel The Tower, where a group of people are trapped on the top floor of a high-rise office building by a raging fire. Looks bad, Jack. Yeah, it is. I got a couple of men hurt. Fire spreading down all corridors. All right, I got a third alarm in. Now, what about this ceiling? Must have just happened. I'll check the other corridor. All right. Firemen, let's pull it down before it falls down. But while The Towering Inferno turned into a cash cow for 20th Century Fox, the studio was not so impressed with Torp's follow-up to The Detective. In fact, few people were, and it wasn't until 1979 that Torp was finally able to find a publisher for a story that had Detective Leland trying to rescue his daughter Stephanie, trapped in a skyscraper under siege from not a raging fire, but rampaging terrorists. <laughs> Who said we were terrorists? The 1970s is often referred to now as Hollywood's second golden age, with films such as The Godfather, Chinatown, Nashville and Taxi Driver appearing to typify the era. But what is often overlooked is that running concurrent to those releases were action pictures such as The Towering Inferno, Breakout and Earthquake. The villains in those pictures were corporate greed, political corruption and good old mother nature. But by the time Die Hard went into production, the landscape had changed. Ronald Reagan was in the White House, the American economy was booming and international terrorism had entered the equation. Which means that besides The Towering Inferno, the film that links the genre across the decades is John Frankenheimer's 1977 adaptation of Thomas Harris's best-selling novel, Black Sunday. There, a group of terrorists attempt to assassinate the US president while he attends the Super Bowl. I'd like to tell you, sir, that with Black September, there's no way you can take every possible precaution. They know exactly what they're going to do, why and when. The only way we can take every possible precaution is to cancel the game. Cancel the Super Bowl? Yes. 
It's the most ridiculous suggestion I've ever heard. That's like cancelling Christmas. 1970s American cinema is celebrated as auteur-driven, but it was Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate that bankrupted an entire studio. As a consequence, Hollywood CEOs decreed that too much control had been ceded to the directors. Producing teams such as Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer redirected Hollywood from highbrow to high concept. Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun. Films where the premise could not only be summed up in a single sentence, but sold in a 30-second TV spot. To that trend, we could add 48 Hours and Commando, which were produced by Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver. And then in 1987, Predator, for which they had hired to direct AFI graduate John McTiernan. Here is McTiernan in 2014, explaining how a good film is made. You cannot make a good movie if the man you're working for doesn't know what he's doing. If he is good and understands his job, you have a chance to make a good movie. If he doesn't know what he's doing, it almost doesn't matter. Here is Silver in interview with Tova Later at the New York Film Academy in 2010. Die Hard was an unusual picture in that, you know, we were kind of crafting a new genre. I mean, action movies were B movies. I mean, they weren't thought of as A pictures as we th think of them today. So what happened is that, you know, they had this slot and a script came in that's kind of not bad. And, you know, if you'll produce it, I think they'll make the movie. Because at that moment, I had a little bit of heat because I had come off both Lethal Weapon and Predator. So, you know, at least it looked like I know how to do these kind of movies, which was a mystery. It, it, by the way, it's still a mystery. And, uh... Of course, the action picture had existed before, but really only in the guise of the war, spy, western, gangster, pirate and disaster pictures. There the action was filler between the drama. But with the arrival of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, the drama became the filler and the action the mainstay. However, what Lucas and Spielberg made was family entertainment. What Silver did was cut out the parents and young children and targeted instead the testosterone-fueled young adult male. In so doing, Silver created a new architecture for the traditional three-act structure. Climaxes every 10 minutes with things that grab the attention of most young men. Wanton destruction, defiance of authority and underdressed women. The louder the gun battle, the more crash in the car chase, the bigger the explosion, the better. In a silver picture, less is not more, and too much is never enough. Excess is the bare minimum. A pyrotechnician can shape an explosion so it blossoms like a flower, or erupts like a hot spring geyser. But the impact depends less on how much money the producer has to spend, and more on how the director composes the image and cuts. Which is why Silver hired McTiernan upon seeing his first feature, Nomads. A horror thriller starring Pierce Brosnan, critics dismissed it as low-budget camp. But what Silver saw was a director in command of film's grammar what you see, what you hear, and when. That is easier said than done, and trying to adjust that grammar is even trickier, as McTiernan attested on his director's commentary for Die Hard. There used to be an awful lot of nostrums about what you could do and what you couldn't do. And particularly for a young filmmaker, you'd have, if the editor didn't agree, he'd start bad-mouthing you to the studio behind your back. Oh, this stuff doesn't cut very well, because there used to be rules about 
you know, that you can't cut a shot until the camera stops moving and all of this. But European filmmakers have been making moves that were motivated on emotion rather than on the physical movement of the character. Um, they'd been doing it for 30 years. McTiernan's claim is not accurate. While cinematographer Jan de Bont moved the camera with great fluency, and editors John F. Link and Frank J. Uriosta cut everything seamlessly, examine any Spielberg action film from the 1980s, and you will find copious dolly shots edited together for no reason other than they solidify the scene's emotional core. And if you prefer drama, Martin Scorsese had been doing the very same thing from as early as 1973 with Mean Streets, and right up to his then most recent picture, where the camera swooned, swooped and swirled around Paul Newman and Tom Cruise. But that is not to take anything away from McTiernan's dynamic style, which undoubtedly added an innate rhythm to the film and an unexpected elegance to the action. Two of his later works, The Hunt for Red October and The Thomas Crown Affair, consolidated his preference for composing and cutting on movement. Nowadays, you need look no further than Michael Bay to see the influence. Shit just got real. With regard to elegant camera movement, my favourite is when the gang arrives at the Nakatomi Plaza. They've split up into two vehicles, a transport truck and a Mercedes. As the vehicles come off the street and onto the plaza's apron, the camera tracks with them as they move parallel to each other. Suddenly, the truck in the background begins to disappear down an incline that will take it into the belly of the building, while the Mercedes swings around to the building's entrance. Foreground, background, two movements, one intention. So much for what Silver and McTiernan were doing. What about Hollywood? Listen again to that sequence from the towering inferno. Looks bad, Jack. Yeah, it is. I got a couple of men hurt. Fire spreading down all corridors. All right, I got a third alarm in. Now, what about this ceiling? Must have just happened. I'll check the other corridor. All right. Firemen, let's pull it down before it falls down. Notice how uniform it sounds. Now listen to this sequence from Die Hard. Here's the dialogue track. I'm going to count to three. Like you did with Takagi. Oops. No bullets. You think I'm fucking stupid, Hans? You're saying? Move! Here's the effects track. Here's the music track. Here they are, all together. I'm going to count to three. Yeah, like you did with Takagi. Oops. No bullets. You think I'm fucking stupid, Hans? You're saying? It is much more energetic because of the sound design. And a lot of that has got to do with George Lucas. There have been several important Hollywood directors who have innovated the sound medium. Orson Welles is perhaps the most obvious example. Howard Hawks with his overlapping dialogue is another, as indeed is Alfred Hitchcock. But Lucas went so far as to develop a sound system, THX, to meet with the visual innovation he was pursuing with Star Wars. That aural sophistication has added enormous energy to Hollywood pictures. 
And perhaps it is no coincidence that of the four Oscar nominations Die Hard received, two of them went to the sound department. Designers Don J. Bassman, Frank F. Cleary, Richard Overton and Al Overton Jr. And editors Stephen Hunter Flick and Richard Shore. In Roderick Torp's book, Joe Leland was hard-bitten and sullen, but early drafts of the script had changed him into being urbane and unflappable. That's because Silver originally wanted Richard Gere, but Gere was not interested, and neither were Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Harrison Ford. Then Silver saw Bruce Willis in the romantic comedy Blind Date. Actually, Walter, if you'll just drop me off at the nearest hotel... What? And bring an end to this glorious evening? I told you I was sorry. Come on! It's barely midnight! Don't you want to boogie down? Dance all night? Tear up the town? Willis had secured that role because of his work on the hit TV show Moonlighting, where he played the wisecracking, self-deprecating detective David Addison. Moonlighting was conceived and written by Glenn Gordon Caron, and it required Willis to deliver the kind of dialogue that wouldn't have sounded out of place in a 1930s screwball comedy. Not being fair. I'm not being honest. Wait a second, give what it a chance. I'm not work, a detective. Really. I'm destitute. Maddie, I should be selling Maddie, my house. Maddie, listen my to car. me. I have a client coming in. A big client. You do? But you're 11:30. Sure, I do. Of course, I do. What I say, I did. If I didn't, remember, if you can't say anything nice. What's this client's name? What kind of question is that? What does it matter? The only thing that matters is that he is going to be here in 20 minutes for a meeting with you and me. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Isn't it worth waiting around another 20 minutes? When casting that part, executives at ABC had been so skeptical of Willis's suitability that he had to audition 11 times. By contrast, TV audiences took one look and knew he was a star. But making the move from the small screen to big was no easy matter. Some actors had done it seamlessly. Goldie Hawn, Burt Reynolds and John Travolta. But others, Clint Eastwood, Sally Field, Michael Douglas and Tom Hanks, had all initially struggled to find the right part. Willis's performance in Moonlighting was enough for Silver to completely overhaul the character in the Die Hard script. Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. The central tension of Moonlighting motivates the first act of Die Hard, because Silver instructed his screenwriters, Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza, to reconfigure the dynamic from a detective trying to rescue his daughter from terrorists to a man trying to save his marriage. Since when did you start using Ms. Gennaro? <sighs> The Japanese company. They figure a married woman's got. You are a married woman, Holly. You're married to me. We're going to have this conversation again. We did this in July. We never finished this conversation in July. I had to take it. Right. No matter what the consequences, no matter what it did to our marriage, you had to take it. It didn't do anything to our marriage except maybe change your idea of what our marriage should be. I don't think you have a clue as to what my idea of our marriage should be. I know exactly what your idea of our marriage should be. But whoever tense those confrontations may have been. They were rudely interrupted by an urbane, unflappable, but clearly sociopathic thief. On the page, Hans Gruber came across as a stock James Bond villain. So again, it took imaginative casting to change the character. 20th Century Fox executives were nervous because Alan Rickman had never appeared on screen before. But audiences did not care. The instant he appeared, they knew he was dangerous. Uh, due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. For me, one sign of a classic is how many imitators it spawns. Barely eight weeks before Die Hard opened, 
Warner Brothers released Above the Law starring Steven Seagal. Now, how many imitations have you seen of that movie? By comparison, we've seen Die Hard on a Plane, a Train, a Boat, a Bus and a Mountain. And the biggest one of them all? The one they made for kids. I'm up here, you morons! Come and get me! You guys give up or you're thirsty for more?